As Governor Eric Greitens awaits his trial on felony invasion of privacy charges, his attorneys and allies are continually attacking St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner in the courtroom and in the court of public opinion. Greitens' allies have pointed out the pay scale and the background of people Gardner brought in for this case. Greitens' attorney Jim Martin is taking issue with an investigator from Michigan that Gardner hired. Because all information relative to any private investigator that worked on this case may be relevant to the evidence that gets presented in the courtroom. On the other side of the political equation, Greitens' foes are turning up the heat. The Missouri Democratic Party's former chairman filed an ethics complaint over how Greitens' campaign received a fundraising list from the Mission Continues, a veterans charity that the governor founded before running for office. And loquacious attorney Al Watkins is continually disseminating disparaging information about the governor to the media. Persons in positions of power and authority, the only way they're going to be stopped from acting with this reckless disregard for the humanity of others is by being outed and by those who are coming forward are supported. As this rhetorical skirmish plays out in the public sphere, a House committee looking into the governor's actions is operating in the background. Chairman Jay Barnes says his committee, which could recommend impeachment, has been keeping busy. So on this latest edition of the Politically Speaking podcast, Joe Manis and Rachel Lipman join me to talk about how each side of the Greitens situation is trying to get a leg up with the public. We'll also go over this week's legal developments that could matter when the governor goes to trial in mid-May. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our cavernous St. Louis Public Radio <laughs> studios today is... Rachel Lipman, one of his fellow reporters. And... Colleague Joe Manis. There are a lot of developments this week. It feels like there's a lot of developments every week, but this time there was definitely an effort in the legal arena to try to influence public opinion and the judge. Rachel, give me kind of a sense of what happened in the courtroom. So we're getting down into now what evidence is going to be allowed and turned over to prosecution, defense, et cetera. Um, Even if the uh, evidence from the prosecution helps out the uh, defendant, in this case, the governor, it still has to be turned over under a rule known as the Brady rule to the defense. They have to be able to prepare their case. Now, the question with it is always what is considered, you know, um, you know, the evidence that could help them out. And that's a decision that comes down to sort of the prosecution's, you know, sense of things. And what the defense is saying is, we want everything. We want to know what you have, whether it's, you know, good, bad, whatever. And the complicating factor here is that it is a private firm, this firm called Entera out of Michigan, that is doing most of the investigation. And there's concerns that there aren't written reports and stuff. So the, the defense is trying to get as much evidence as possible because they think some of it might help out their client. Uh, and it, it's trying to, to, to calibrate that. So what's going to happen is they'll turn over most of like the standard stuff you would expect to see in a case like this. Others they will claim as privileged, and it'll be up to the judge to decide what information is released to the prosecution. Now, from reading the St. Louis Post-Dispatch this week, there was a pretty lengthy article detailing how the head of this Michigan-based mm-hmm. investigation company had ha- has had some issues in the past, to use that euphemism. He's been accused of lying to the FBI 
um, which was his former employer, over the issue of uh, his, his marriage status. Uh, the indication is that he uh, had been married once before, then got married again before his divorce was completed, which it's is technically illegal. Uh, which is technically, <laughs> I was getting there. It's called bigamy. It's technically illegal to be married to two people at the same time. And his defense is that he didn't realize his divorce from his first wife had not gone through. How, how relevant is that going to be at trial? I know it's kind of a a public relations coup for the pro-Greiton side because I guess it shows that Gardner didn't do a lot of due diligence on this person's background, but I'm not really sure how that's going to affect his fate at trial. What, what, what's been your, your view I, of that? I don't think it is so much that it helps or hurts Greitens in a legal sense one way or the other. It is not relevant in the sense that it doesn't go to the issue of is there a photo? Was there consent? Did it get transmitted to a computer somehow where it could be viewed? But what it does call into question is the um, the the character, the uh, reliability of the investigation of this individual of, of Governor Greitens by this company if they have, you know, had legal issues in the past and, and if he is a criminal. The other thing, too, is the St. Louis Record has reported um, that Antera, this company, is behind on taxes in both Michigan and in uh, Delaware, where they were originally incorporated. And there's been a complaint filed by a former St. Louis police officer who is now a private investigator that Mr. Tizaby, the head of the firm, is working as a private investigator without a license in Missouri, which would he alleges violates state law. So there's a lot of efforts to kind of call into question the credibility of this investigator. But in terms of the center, central question of whether there's a photo, whether there was consent, and then whether it was transmitted to a computer is not affected by these issues with Mr. Tisby. And I think that gets to our question today from Sam Lakey. Uh, we, we've been asking people if they have questions about this case, and this is the one that we're going to use as a jumping off point. Is there a consensus among lawyers or those familiar with prosecutorial decision making and procedure as to whether or not the charges brought by Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner are reasonable and have a genuine chance uh, at, at conviction? Now, none of us here are lawyers, but the clip that I'm about to play now, that which was kind of a a mini scrum mm-hmm. after Thursday's day in court between Rachel, a few other reporters, and one of Greitens' attorneys, Jim Martin. Is Jim, that his name? Yeah, Jim Martin. And the reporter you hear most from, I think, is probably uh, Rocky Madden with Channel 2. Th- this is, I think, going to be one of the central factors about whether Mr. Lakey's question is answered or not. Can you tell us at this point if you have the photograph in question? There is no photograph. They've, the gov- gov- circuit attorney's already said that. They have no photograph, you have no photograph. Well, you'll have to ask them for sure, but none has been turned over to us. But when you say there's no photograph, that means you don't have one either, your your team and your your uh, Governor Grimes. We're, we're relying on whatever they turn over. Well, as we said, we want whatever they have. So you don't have a picture either? That's correct. And Governor Grimes doesn't have one? Uh, that, that is correct. It was a very windy day that day. It was a very windy day, and we're recording off of our phones. But essentially, the the central question is, is there a photo? And right now, that would be evidence that the prosecution would have to turn over to the defense because it is at the center of this case. Right now, what Jim Martin was saying there, and that was Lauren Traeger you heard at the beginning of that clip, is no. The defense or the prosecution has not yet turned over the photo. They have turned over some photos, but not the photo in question, the photo of the um, the mistress allegedly as she's, she's bound in his basement. 
That hasn't been turned over to the defense yet, which would indicate, I think, that the prosecution doesn't have it because they would be required to turn that over as that's at the center of the case. Mm -hmm. And yes, that does get to Sam's question. If they have the photo and they can make the argument and, you know, convince a jury that the woman did not know her picture was being taken, did not consent to the picture being taken, then I think it becomes more of a just, you know, from conversations I've had, the understanding of the law that I have, again, disclaimer, not an attorney, that they can at least make the case that her privacy was invaded. If they don't have the photo, that is a central element of the statute. Yeah. And I mean, Joe, we've heard the governor asked the question, did you take this photograph probably six or seven times well, since this has been happened asked. Yeah, he's, by, he's been asked. by reporters, and he's never really definitively answered that question. Right. Well, see, yeah, because here's a couple things. The woman was blindfolded and says that she saw a She flash. saw a flash. Mm-hmm. That's what's in the audio that was recorded by her now ex-husband. Now, so Greitens has never flatly denied that he took a photo. So the issue becomes, did he... Um, store it electronically somewhere? Is it still sitting around? Did he erase it right then? I mean, we don't know. This happened in 2015. But he hasn't said any of that. The defense, (coughs) they say they don't have a photo. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a photo. It just means that neither side has done the, um, has gotten the evidence of it if there is one, if it's on his, if it's on his, uh, on the cloud. Uh, on the in cloud, the cloud yeah. somewhere. Um, so that's something that I think the the uh, prosecution, though, they're the ones who have to, ha- they have the main responsibility to find it. Well, they, they have to have it for their case. I mean, that, that would be essential to showing that her privacy was invaded because that's like the first thing. If you have to take the photo for there to be a crime, if they can't produce or show there is a photo, all you have is the woman saying, I saw a flash, and that could have been anything. Really. Yeah, and, and but, per- but he hasn't denied it, too. I mean, I in theory, you wouldn't need the photo if both sides admit that there was one. No, no, but correct mm. me if I'm wrong here. I watched that KMOV report pretty closely from, and, and you've listened to the recordings probably longer than I have. Isn't the sequence of events that was said in the, in the taping that Greitens took the photo, said, you better not tell anybody. The woman objected to it, and then he said he deleted the photo. Right. I, I, am I wrong on that? No, so, at least that's what he implied to her. Now, again, she's blindfolded at the time, okay? Okay. He did actually delete the photo in that instance. Yeah, but it, it would to still the extent be that floating. you can delete it anything would, yeah, from Yeah, anything the... that's, you know, well, because you how, know. how would that, yeah. if, let's say that sequence of events did happen, how would that affect how this case is decided? In terms of if he deleted the photo. Well, remember, this, the other central part to this being escalated to a felony was the transmission of it to a place where it could be accessed by a computer. Mm-hmm. So even if you delete it from your phone, if you then the I, I am it's guessing the theory the of the case is the transmission is it synced to the cloud. Right. That they, he took it on some kind of smartphone. It synced automatically to the cloud. There's the transmission. So maybe that's where they think it is, is it's just hanging out in, in his cloud somewhere. And that would be enough to show not only that there's a photo, but also that it was transmitted to a computer. And something I thought that's never been mentioned, I've wondered about this. Does he still have that phone? See, if he's got that phone, even if he deleted it, they could probably find it. But let's say he's changed phones. But if it's in the cloud, 
it like it, 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 the cloud doesn't change with the phone. You can delete no. stuff in the cloud. You can. I've yeah. done it before. I'm just saying that. <laughs> but I want to. I want to. I want to take a step back for a second because one of the things that that we've noticed is there has been a concerted effort not only by the legal team mm-hmm. but also the political team to disparage Kim Gardner mm-hmm. and to insinuate that her case is flimsy, that her competency is in question. Frankly, and people may be upset with me saying this, arguments that I've heard before this case from primarily white Democrats allied with organized labor who have been criticizing Gardner on the peripheral about her competency. I mean, Joe, we've had people- this was before then. This was before. But how many people have come on our our show, our podcast, who have been African-American officials who have taken note about how Kim Gardner has been treated differently from Jennifer Joyce since she's been taking taking office. She's gotten less money in her budget than she requested. You know, they're perturbed at all the criticism about the turnover in her office. Like the arguments that Greitens and his team are floating are some of the same arguments that the ruling class, Democratic class that I just mentioned, have been making about her since she's taken office. I think St. Louis Democrats in general, at least publicly, haven't haven't disparaged her. <laughs> I think I, part- I kind of disagree well, with that, okay, but continue. Okay, okay, but part of the problem is okay, I mean one one could say that Jennifer Joyce maybe had a little more of a legal background before she became prosecutor. But of course and, and it'd be it'd be hard for anybody because Joyce held the office for so long it would be hard for anybody new because people can hardly compare a new office holder with someone who'd held that office for 16 years. Now, um, Gartner is a former state legislator. She's a lawyer. She's also a nurse. So, I mean, she has she has a lot of um, uh, credentials, I think. And some have been questioning some of the people who have surrounded her. Some of them mm-hmm. question whether some of her um, advisors... If maybe she shouldn't. I'm not saying it's true or not. I'm just saying this is what and what, and, what some and, of the questions and, are. And that's what the questions I was talking about, because I heard those questions again on the peripheral before this case happened, before this Greitens affair was revealed from, again, the ruling primarily white labor union aligned Democratic Party faction. And I believe that the interesting thing is. The Greitens team are basically taking these arguments and using them to bash Gardner in in, in the public sphere. And I guess I, it's I, a question of if, if, I, if, if why why break what isn't broken in a sense. Like if they sense that there was legitimacy, or again, like Joe's saying, you can't. I don't know whether they are you know legitimate arguments or not. I'm not in that office. I know that a lot has been made of the turnover. I think you can expect some turnover when a new office holder comes in. Uh, that you know that's just kind of typical. But you know, I, I guess it's sort of one of those things where enemy of my enemy is my friend at this point. And you know, we see that all the time in politics. No, I thought it was. Uh, I mean, when I was in Jeff City, when uh, the speaker announced the committee, right after that, there was the two. St. Louis area legislators, Shamed Dogan and Marsha Hafner, who held this press conference, you know, reaffirming their opposition to the governor. I asked them specifically about this, and I actually have a decent piece of audio from um, uh, Shamed Dogan in particular, the representative from West County, who was like, the governor needs to quit this. This is disrespectful. Mm-hmm. He was very specific that, that the governor uh, and his staff should not be disparaging 
the circuit attorney that way. I really didn't appreciate that attack on the prosecutor. It's kind of odd to have someone saying that they're pro-law and order in the same sentence that they're attacking an elected prosecutor. Um, so I didn't like that at all. Um, how effective do you think that this kind of anti-Gardner sentiment is going to be as far as rallying public opinion toward Greitens' side? I don't know if it's so much ra- about rallying somebody to his side, but remember, trials are based on the idea of reasonable doubt. If you can put enough doubt into a juror's mind, whether they realize it or not, about the competency of the investigator, about the competency of the prosecutor, about, you know, the the legality of, you know, this individual even working in the state of Missouri, it's a subtle way to try and bias the jury pool. I mean, J- Jim Martin in court, um, I won't say admitted that he leaked some of the stuff to the Post-Dispatch, but kind of didn't deny that there may have been some, you know, hey, you might want to go look at these court documents in Alabama or, you know, take a take a look at this guy in other states. There is a protective order saying that, you know, discovery information, stuff that they get in the and the regular exchange of information will not be disclosed to a third party. Mm-hmm. And Martin, Jim Martin just basically said, I don't believe this was an issue in discovery, indicating mm-hmm. that maybe somebody, maybe not Martin, but someone connected to this case did sort of steer an individual in a direction to go look at stuff. Well, I think in some ways, though, is it just it, it just hardens the some of the existing uh, divide between, you know, the people who are uh, pro Greitens, uh, not Greitens. I think in some ways that they're attacking uh Circuit Attorney Gardner, in part, to try to sway some Republicans who are anti-Greitens to maybe say, well, look, you may not like the guy, but this woman and her office, they're not being played fair. I mean, because because I, I think one of the things that isn't underscored enough, and partly is because Greitens people don't emphasize it, this is not a Democratic-Republican issue. In fact, that's our next topic. You know, this is kind of the. Well, that's why I'm segueing into it. You're a great segueer, Joe. We're going to talk about the anti Greitens campaign because you're right. It's been bipartisan. There have definitely been some Democrats, including one I'm about to mention, who have been banging the anti Greitens drum since he acknowledged the affair. But frankly, there have been more Republicans. Yes. Who have been banging the anti Greitens drum for, since way before? For since before this, because they didn't like him for various reasons, but especially since this, for various reasons, I think it runs the gamut from they don't feel like he's an effective governor anymore. They're fearful that he's going to bring down other political candidates, and then there's the the dark thing dark money. Well, well, there's that, and there's the other aspect that I talk about all the time. That is that there's a lot of Republicans who are upset with some of his policy decisions that would be more happy with Mike Parson becoming governor. Yes. And there's also a lot of Republican-leaning consultants and business people who would make millions of dollars if Mike Parson becomes governor, especially since he would likely restart the low-income housing tax credit program, which is why you probably see political consultants and political types who are super fans of that program banging the anti-Greitens drum so much. Um, but but and, and that that kind of makes sense, because while the Democratic sentiment is interesting, as we're about to mention, 
they, they don't run the state. They, they are so outnumbered. The, and also, I think they find Greitens useful. Rob Schaff isn't going to filibuster Mike Parson, but he, were, he will sure as heck filibuster Governor Greitens. Yeah, and no, and depends on the, depends on the West, issue. Well, right. But, 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 what, but what, do you, what do you make of the, 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 the fact that I mentioned that a lot of the, the anti-Greitens sentiment is coming with Republicans for, for the various reasons I mentioned, Yeah, Joe. yeah because, I mean, I, I did a story on Greitens' dark money stuff over a year ago, a feature, and I had Rob Schaff and some other Republicans talking on the record that they thought he was a hypocrite, that they thought that he was claiming he got elected, claiming to be draining the swamp, and he didn't. And this was like within a month or two of him being sworn in. And some of this goes back to the very nasty four-way Republican primary right. for governor, mm-hmm. where the other three really beat up on him. Over at this point, some of his donors were still public mm-hmm. before he switched to this other the operation. Following, yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit to something that was actually in the news this week. Former Missouri Democratic Party Chairman Roy Temple filed an ethics complaint against the Greitens campaign. Uh, it all stems from this issue that happened during the campaign where Greitens campaign got a hold of this fundraising list from the Mission Continues, which is a charity that Greitens founded before he took the governor's office. Eventually, he had to pay a $100 fine. It it, it was said in the disclosure that one of his campaign staffers got this list. The Mission Continues has adamantly said that they did not give over this fundraising list to the Greitens campaign. The the Post-Dispatch had an article basically saying that Greitens' personal assistant, I think, emailed the, the fundraising list to campaign staffers. And now uh, Mr. Temple wants his probation to be revoked and uh, it referred to criminal prosecution. Joe, we both have known Roy Temple for a, a very long time. Yes. Um, I, I, don't, I haven't talked with him about this particular complaint. I don't think he's doing this out of personal gain or trying to gain status within Missouri when he has the governor of Pennsylvania and the governor of New Jersey as clients. I think that he really is upset at Greitens' actions and especially his actions in this particular situation. Well, I think one of the things that people may not remember is that during the 2016 campaign, Chris Coster, the Democratic nominee for governor, ran all these ads attacking Greitens for the mission continues as far as claiming he was taking too much money from it. I mean, making some other accusations. And fair or unfair, those ads kind of went flat. I was just going to say, I, I, I wonder if Coster had spent more money on focusing on how Greitens was anti-right to work, whether the whether the race would have been between one or two percentage points instead of six. I mean, we've talked about this before yeah. offline. I feel like those ads trying to ding him on the mission continues were were, were a huge mistake on the Coster part. At the time, he was, you know, clean-cut military veteran trying to do good for his fellow veterans. And it's sort of like if you have money coming into you, the guy's got to make a living, you know. And you could argue, like, whatever he was being paid is more than enough to live. But I I kind of agree with you. Like, attacking a guy for taking too much money from a charity he founded to help veterans— but I, I don't know what's really going to come of this, and I, I don't really want to compare this to other financial or campaign finance uh, snafus, because we don't even know if this case is going to be adjudicated. Right now, I don't believe the Missouri Ethics Commission has enough members to make any As decisions. Of today. As of today, March 16th, um, they don't. At 2.15. At 2.15. Be- because several of their members—the Ethics Commission is an anomaly. 
and that its members, when they hit the deadline of their terms, they're out. Oh, it's okay. not like they can just continue until somebody points to replace them. And I'm going to play a clip now from Senate Majority Leader Mike Kehoe talking about the problems of Greitens appointing somebody. The first voice you're going to hear is Jefferson City News Tribune reporter uh, Bob Watson. Some of the concerns during the debate this morning, though, was you now have a governor who's in the position of, point, of appointing half of a commission that's been asked to investigate him. Right. Well, that's why the Senate has advice and consent. So I think uh, it w that's why you can't go too fast on that process. You have to make sure that uh, as those folks are appointed that we um, do as much due diligence as possible. So we make sure that they'll be uh, fair and equitable um, that are on there. People that are on there now that we all know, like Bill Deacon and whatnot, I think those guys are uh, very fair people that understand the process. And so I look for more folks like that. Now, Greitens is under some restrictions. Um, at the six-member uh, commission, half is Republican, half is Democrat. If I'm correct, the three vacancies are two Democrats and one Republican. I'm not 100% sure, but that sounds correct. Yeah, so my point being is that uh, in sometimes governors try to get away, and this I've seen this in both parties, of naming people who are supposed to represent the other party but really weren't. You mean like Republican election judges in the city of St. Louis? Yeah, but, I mean, which is a whole other thing. Well, yes, but. But, I mean, there's a, his, and I won't go into examples of that. But my point being is that in this case, the both of the parties may be, and the Democrats in particular, and I think this may be part of the reason why Temple did this, although I haven't talked to him about this either, is that the Democrats are probably on alert. They want to make sure that the nominees he hires for the commission are real Democrats. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, by filing a complaint, they're sort of putting the governor on notice that we're going to be watching you. So, so here's the issues here. So if Greitens doesn't appoint anybody, which he has the right to do, by the way, that's what's happening with the Missouri Housing Development Commission, and that's why there's no low-income housing tax credits, then the Ethics Commission doesn't have enough quorum to do anything. They don't. They can't. They can't levy, levy any punishments against anybody. And hypothetically, people could commit all sorts of campaign finance violations with no punishment. If he does appoint people, then it runs the risk of he's appointing people that could decide on this particular ethics complaint. Now there has been a suggestion, I think, by Senator Bob Dixon that M Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson should appoint instead. First of all, that would require a statutory change, which exactly. Greitens would almost certainly veto. And frankly, that would run into constitutional problems, because if you look at the Missouri Constitution, it's pretty clear that the governor is the main appointing entity. So as I said on Twitter, we're stuck. But you put on a solution possibly where the governor consults with both parties. They suggest people that could pass through the advise and consent process and we could have an ethics commission. Now, again. this happened during Bob Holden. The reason when Bob Holden was he's a Democrat when he was governor, it was a different panel, but he was being under fire for stuff. And that was one of the resolutions. He ended up having the parties give him a list of nominees, both of them. And then he this was for a different group, but it was the same type of thing where they had to be Democrats and Republicans. I'm asking you guys this because you understand this process a little better. Can um, local prosecutors take up campaign finance violations without the Missouri Ethics Commission yes, they being can. in there. Yes, so they can. that is also, I mean, 
Not that I think they're going to take up. They forgot to put a paid by mail, you know, paid by bug on their mailers. But that is also potentially a solution for egregious, you know, taking money from people you shouldn't be um, spending it on personal things, which we've seen happen before. Now, James Clark, who's the executive director of the commission, I talked to him uh, yesterday and he said uh, or rather he emailed me. I sent him some I, he was, I sent him some questions. He sent me back a response. But his his explanation was that their investigative staff can still investigate the complaints that that it's not that the complaints are automatically dead, that they can still be working on them and get everything uh, together. And see, you know, the commission hires the staff. So you don't know if the governor will be trying to do some of the things he did with a couple of these other commissions where he, the appointees, he told them he wanted them to fire this person or that person. Right. Um, I do kind of want to shift for our last topic about the House committee uh, investigation into the governor. I'm going to play a clip now from Jay Barnes, who's the head of the committee. He actually gave a little bit of an update about what the committee has done so far didn't really deal with a lot of super specific details, but did provide some insight into what this potentially important legislative body is doing. As you are aware, if you've been counting, uh, the committee has been moving quickly. We've had five hearings in two weeks, spoken to a number of witnesses. There are additional witnesses with whom we plan to speak. I know there's a great concern in this room about what will be made public. I want you guys to know that there has been a court reporter at every hearing taking a transcription of the proceedings. Those transcriptions will be released at the point in time in which we are concluding our investigation or coming to a conclusion of the investigation. We're reserving the right to redact things for privacy, to protect names. Rachel, I think I heard you say, huh, huh, in that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, that's a gold mine, obviously, for us reporters. But I am also wondering if this ends up as evidence in the criminal trial. I'm assuming there are methods to get it in there to con- to point to differences in the story of the ex-wife, for example, if you're using it again to sort of call credibility into question. Well, you told your husband this one thing in this transcript. You said this thing in the grand jury. You said this thing in the testimony to the um, the committee. And to just basically be like, well, did you make this up? Why are you doing this? It's, again, the credibility question here. And well, yeah. It, yeah. I, I mean, that that's really interesting that there are sort of transcripts to this and what the path is to potentially get this into the criminal trial to use for some of these credibility issues, factual issues, et cetera. Now, I mean, their deadline, sort of deadline right now is what, April 9th? April 9th. But um, Barnes has said that, I mean, he notes that the uh, – that the charge they were given lets them have leeway. They can extend it if they want. So I think it'll be interesting if they put their uh, report out, whatever it says, in time for the lawyers on both sides to snag it, to use it in the uh, uh, indictment trial, which is now set for May, uh, May 14th. Yep, questioning uh, voir dire for the jury pool starts May 10th and the trial or, starts May 14th. Or do they... Um, keep deliberating on this as the House panel, and maybe it comes out like a day or two after 
the trial starts. I mean, who knows? Who knows? That That is certainly a question. And obviously, they could slow walk this to eliminate the possibility of an impeachment trial, even if they recommend it to, you know, it, there's obviously a number of different ways this could work. But the idea that there are official court transcript or official transcripts done by a court reporter of this that piques my interest immediately to think, and I'm sure it has already piqued the interest of the defense team, to be like, hmm, I wonder what is in these that we can use to help the defense of our client. Before we go, this is a new thing that I want to put everybody on the spot for. What do you feel is the biggest takeaway from this week, Rachel? I think how much of this is going to be kind of tried very subtly in the court of public opinion, not necessarily to push partisans one way or the other, but to try and impact the jury pool. Um, I mean, I I think we were all surprised that they never made a motion to move this trial elsewhere unless they thought it just wouldn't be granted. And so now it's, you know, it's not like we have a big jury pool in St. Louis to begin with. And my wife's been chosen like three or four times. Oh, so have I. So have I. I've been back in the city now for 10 years and I'm on that sort of like every two or three year cycle where you get called. Um, But and especially if they move to sequester the jury where you would basically be, you know, going between the courthouse and a hotel for however long this takes, that limits the jury pool even further. Um, Single parents, for example, it'd be very difficult for people who work nights, other things like that. And, you know, the more they can kind of without people realizing it sort of one way or the other influence how people think of it, that could have an impact on raising doubts, which are, you know, fundamental to getting a conviction. If you can raise enough doubts about something, you give the reasonable doubt. Joe? I think the whole Ethics Commission, the fact that they no longer have a uh, quorum, and I know that sounds inside baseball, but I think it could have a a big impact. My biggest takeaway from this, there are no heroes in this situation, and I'm going to leave it at that. For all our news on the Greitens situation, go to stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman, two P's and two N's. How would people follow you on Twitter, Joe? At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking on iTunes, our your favorite podcast dissemination device. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>